morning. I have to say, I thought I was a pretty big sports fan, but I never named a frog or any pet after my favorite baseball player. So I think that means this is good parenting, is what I'm trying to say. Well done. Um, before we get started, uh, Kate led us very helpfully into a space of reflection um, this morning on what it means to be in a worship service <laughs> meant for praise and thanksgiving in a time that does not feel super praiseworthy. Um, And one of those specific things, it's hard to pick kind of what we need to name specifically in the context of the service, but one thing I really want to name is that we became a reconciling congregation this year, which meant we took a step to explicitly announce and articulate our commitment to LGBTQIA folks in the Methodist Church. Um, And this week, January 1st, was when the policies that were decided at the Special General Conference in February went into effect. Um, Greater New Jersey and our bishop has made commitments in order to advocate for those folks in our own community and in our own region, and we should be absolutely grateful for that. doesn't mean the work is done here, but the work has been started here, and that is God's grace. Um, But that's not the case everywhere. And as someone who is not from New Jersey originally... um, There are specific names and people on my mind that I'm thinking of this week. And so, as a congregation that's made that commitment, I just want to ask that we take a couple seconds of silence to just reflect on those in our denomination um, that are experiencing greater risk over the last few days than they have even in the previous months since these decisions have been made. So if you'll just take a couple seconds of silence. Amen. If you'll join me in the gospel reading for this morning, it comes from the book of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of people, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen God's glory." The glory as God's only Son, full of grace and truth. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to God's heart, who has made God known. The word of God for the people of God. Will you join me in prayer? Dear Lord, we thank you for this time, for this place, for these people, and for this purpose. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So when you grow up in a family or a faith community or a particular cultural context, it's normal to have certain scripts that everyone in the community abides by or kind of lives within. They could be certain ideas, values, maybe even phrases that your people often repeat as a reminder about who you are in the world. For me, 
And I wonder if any of you can relate to this. Something my community would repeat over and over, especially in reference to our Christian identity, was the following phrase. We are in the world, not of the world. Has anyone heard this? Raise of hands. Yeah? Anyone grow up hearing this from family members or church? Yep. It tends to mean that as people of faith, even though we find ourselves living into discipleship and ministry, in a world that is mired in brokenness, sin, and values that sit in opposition to maybe how we perceive Christ's values or the values of our particular church, we do not have to be defined by those same things. We can live in this space, in this context, amidst these cultural priorities, and still embody a different set of commitments. And obviously, this sense of living in the world and not of the world can take on a lot of different forms, depending on how we interpret what the values of Christ are and how we interpret what the values of the world are. In my case, as a white evangelical Protestant, the script was being communicated to me in the wake of a century-long debate between fundamentalists and moderate evangelicals in the United States. Now, the general public has struggled to delineate between fundamentalists and the broader forms of evangelicalism, so much so that George Marsden, maybe the most famous scholar of evangelical Christianity, once said that a fundamentalist is simply an evangelical who is angry about something. But, despite the complexity of these historical categories, in the early to mid-20th century, there was a primary distinction between the two groups. And this was that fundamentalists often sought to separate themselves from secular culture, while the rest of the white evangelical movement that birthed the churches I grew up in and that gave way to new and powerful forms of white Christian political engagement that might seem familiar to us even today, they wanted to remain in conversation with the world, or society, or the political structures of the day. For them, or for us, I guess, for my people, a true missionary sensibility would not allow for separatism. Sure, we couldn't settle for being of the world, for conflating Christianity with culture, but we also couldn't pretend as though we didn't exist within its realities, as though we would make more of an impact on society if we avoided it or pretended that we weren't affected by it. Billy Graham probably represented this form of evangelical Christianity that was kind of engaged with the world, resisting the isolationism of fundamentalist Christianity more than anyone else. He even gave a sermon one time that he titled, In the World, Not of the World, where he said the following, Christians are like the Gulf Stream, which is in the ocean and yet not part of it. This mysterious current defies the mighty Atlantic, ignores its tides, and flows steadily upon its course. Its color is different, being a deeper blue, its temperature is different, being warmer. Its direction is different, being from south to north. It is in the ocean, and yet it is not part of the ocean. So we as Christians are in the world. We come in contact with the world, and yet we retain our distinctive kingdom character and refuse to let the world press us into its mold. This tradition of white evangelicalism for me to believe that being in the world, not of the world, involves seeking the redemption of spaces that clearly lacked God as evidenced by the presence of the sexual revolution and the lack of biblical values as we saw it in society. Beyond white evangelicalism, there's a number of other Christian traditions that articulated a version of in the world, not of the world, including many black 
church traditions, such as the African Methodist Episcopal Church, who separated from white Methodism because of racism, segregation, and its support of slaveholders. For them, white supremacy, segregation, racist violence, that was the world. That was the space where God's values were clearly lacking, and it was everywhere. For many of these communities, the black church functioned as a safe haven from the violence of the world. As Eddie Gloud put it, black churches were the sites for a public discourse critical of white supremacy, as well as the space for identity construction. Here, African Americans engaged in public deliberation free of humiliation, at least by white folks. In this context, to live in the world but not of the world meant to believe counterculturally that blackness was not inferior to whiteness, that it did not deserve violence or segregation. Our text today from John has us thinking about what it means to be in the world while retaining a different set of values from it. Specifically, it asks how we are to interpret the fact that Jesus was not recognized by the world for who he was. As verses 10 and 11 say, he was in the world and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own and his own people did not accept him. As Cornelius Plantinga says about this text, the world hung up on Jesus, slammed doors on him, turned their backs on him. The Gospels say that pious people plotted against him, that Judas betrayed him, that three disciples fell asleep on him, that witnesses lied about him, and that Peter denied him. They tell us that Pilate flogged him and that soldiers mocked him. Then when the soldiers got tired of kneeling in front of Jesus and belting him in the face, they led him out to crucify him. After all, mockery mortifies the human spirit so devastatingly that crucifixion is just a way of finishing it off. You see, I think sometimes Christians, amidst our doctrinal debates about God or Christology, we assume Jesus' contemporary, contemporary struggled with his identity, struggled with accepting his role as a spiritual leader because people were calling him the Son of God or conflating him with the divine. It's the historic claims of his identity in God that got him into trouble. But the fact is, who Jesus claimed to be or who others claimed him to be could never be separated from how he carried himself. Maybe there would have been less of a problem if he claimed to be this special person while embodying the characteristics of a military leader. Maybe he would have faced less resistance if he held a lot of difficult opinions but still bowed beneath the authority of the Roman leadership. But he didn't. The world didn't recognize Jesus because he played by a different set of rules and proclaimed a different set of commitments. He didn't resort to violence against his enemies. He didn't desire solidarity with anyone beyond the poor and the marginalized. That is what made him unrecognizable. It was not an accident. It was the result of clearly understanding his vocation and calling in the world. It was, quoting Billy Graham, his way of refusing to let the world press him into its mold. Now, Billy Graham and I have a lot more differences now than we did when I was a kid, that is for sure. But as we enter this post-Advent season where Jesus has now arrived and we are forced to ask questions about what it means to be a disciple of the one who became flesh and lived among us, I can't help but wonder if a foundational part of being Christian is to refuse to let the world press us into its mold. 
It's mold of violence. It's mold of war and of escalation. It's mold of exclusion and harm, of keeping certain people out of pulpits and certain others in them. The mold of being unaccountable for our actions and unrepentant for the harm we have done, our people have done, our nation has done, our values have done. Now, one of the ways that we try and take accountability at this church is through our own mission work and our own Christian education spaces. And it's here where I think we're able to find some examples of people from within the history of the church that have practiced what it means to resist the world's values when they're geared towards harm. The AME is one of those examples, as I mentioned earlier, where instead of living in a system of segregation, they chose to start their own denomination that would not be defined by racist violence. Another example came to me when I was doing some teaching in Berlin, Germany, with some students that were interested in thinking about what does it mean to engage, interpret, and examine a new ministry context when you're coming from a different culture. U.S.-based students would come to Germany, they would think about the local ministries that are happening in that space, and they would say, what kind of history do I need to learn? What kind of leaders do I need to connect with? What kinds of policies and social norms do I need to understand if I was going to be a disciple of Christ in this space? So we would go around the city and we would look at different moments in the formation of Berlin, and of course many of those focused on World War II. And though the museums and the bullet holes that still exist from the Cold War and places that had been bombed during the time of Nazi leadership still exist, the one that always caught me was a little marble statue that exists outside a small train station in the center of the city with a sign that said Kinder Transport. Children Transport is how it's translated. This marble statue has a matching one in London, and it represents a group of Quaker Christians who during the time of the war were not going to settle to watch violence against their Jewish neighbors, but instead organized to create secret pathways out of small train stations to places like London, to places in southern Europe. They created a map of safe homes where they could place Jewish children so that they could escape Nazi persecution and violence. The Quakers who faced this violence and did something about it were not a large and robust religious community with lots of resources in power or money. They did not belong to the state church of Germany, and they were not necessarily in positions of influence, but they did have some privilege, and they knew how to use what was available to them in order to challenge the conflation between Christianity and nationalism. They knew how to do the hard work of saying no to those in the world who intended harm. In saying no to powerful voices, in saying no to mainstream German church, in saying no to their country, they were saying yes to the needs of their neighbors. Yes to justice, yes to wisdom, yes to peace. They didn't avoid responsibility, but grounded deeply in their context, they did everything they could to live into the values of a poor, homeless, illiterate Jew instead of pious German Christianity. What they realized, and what we need to realize sometimes, is that saying we are not of the world 
does not necessarily mean we resent the world. It can sometimes mean we are so deeply in love with it. Love with a particular version of the world, a version that is transformed, a version where there's harmony, a version where there's hope, and a version where there's goodness. For a particular type of world that doesn't play with people's lives or see brute power as the only form of currency. You know, when picking sermon illustrations, I'm often hesitant to choose anything from my time in Germany, especially when it has to do with World War II. Because in a place like Madison, it can be easier for people to respond in a way that's like, you know, I get why you made that connection, but it doesn't seem super relatable. That was a time of worldwide crisis. But friends, it's getting harder and harder for people of faith like us to claim we're not in crisis times. Parts of the world are on fire. Climate change is ramping up. Violence and war have been waged, and we are not innocent in that fact. Whether it's in conversations at work or with family, or whether it is in deciding how we're going to use our money, or whether it's figuring out who we're going to vote for or how we're going to advocate in our world, there will be opportunities for us to decide what our values are. To decide if we'll let the world press us into its mold. My hope is that we won't. May we resist mimicking the most prevalent and powerful voices, instead aligning ourselves with what could be seen as the least powerful voice. The voice of a homeless Jew who was murdered by the government and who was known as the Son of God. The voice of the incarnate one who took on flesh and dwelt among us, calling us to be a people of peace. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this time, for this place, for these people, and for this purpose. We pray for wisdom, pray for accountability, pray for responsibility, pray for survival when we feel like good news is too optimistic, and we pray for your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.